2: people don't realize it is extremely hard to solve a cold case. And until an investigative genetic genealogy really you had to do one of two things. You had to be a skilled interviewer and interrogator and get the person to confess. Right. And there's a, there's a methodology for that as well. You know, of going back to somebody 10, 20, 30 years later, or you had to come up with that witness they had told. This is, this is interesting. Suspects always tell somebody they did it. That's how they cope.
3: Welcome to Killer Questions with Darren Carp. I'm your host, Darren Karp, and today we're talking about the case of Lorelai Bringy's murder and the decades-long hunt for her killer who was hiding in plain sight. This case was investigated in the late 80s, went cold for many years, and was reopened. The story is truly insane and has literally lasted my entire lifetime. I've got a ton of unanswered questions about it, so let's get started. In 1988, 34-year-old Lorelei are gonna call her Lori for this case, and her 42-year-old husband, Mark, live in Pointet, Wisconsin with their eight-year-old daughter and six-year-old son. On August 19th, 1988, Mark picks Lori up from work and brings her to their home, where they plan to meet Lori's dad, Stanley. Mark drops her off at home and leaves her a quick trip to the library while she waits at the house for her father to arrive. This was the last time Mark sees Lori. As he leaves for the library around 4.20 p.m., he claims he hears a gunshot but thinks nothing of it, which, how is anyone thinking nothing of a gunshot, but okay. When Mark returns from the library, he sees that Stanley has arrived at the house. Stanley asks Mark where Lori is, but Mark doesn't know, and he's only just gotten home himself. Mark suggests to Stanley that the two look around for Lori. After all, she has to be nearby. The two men search in and around the family home, and eventually Lori's dad, Stanley, makes a gruesome discovery. He finds his daughter's body in a nearby wooded area. Stanley later recalls that moment, quote, I said, oh my God, as I saw blood coming from her mouth. I saw a gun near her and thought, oh no, she shot herself in the mouth. I shouted for Mark to get some help and knelt down to hold her head. Emergency responders arrive at the Bringy's home, where they immediately begin investigating the scene they discover that Lori has sustained a single gunshot wound to her head. Next to her body are two 25 caliber pistols that belong to Mark, as well as a magazine loaded with four rounds and a leather gun holster. A single gunshot took Lori's life, but investigators are unable to find a shell casing nearby. The team also notes that Lori's body is in a strange position, She's laying on her back, but the blood from the wound is running in an uphill trajectory across her face. And when investigators return to the scene the next day, they're unable to find any blood on the ground. Detectives take Mark's statement about the time leading up to Lori's death. Right away, police are suspicious of Mark, believing he may have had a hand in Lori's death. For one thing, the gunshot wound to Lori's head is located on the left side, although she's right-handed. Think about if you're right-handed, you're not going to shoot yourself on the left side of your face. That would seem pretty awkward. Investigators noted that Lori's skirt is crooked in spite of the fact that she's kind of known to be somewhat of a perfectionist. They also find it odd that her shoes are removed and placed to the right of her body. When an autopsy is conducted, Bringy's body has been cleaned and embalmed, which makes it harder for the medical examiner to determine a manner of death. Digging deep into the couple's life, detectives uncover that there was some serious marital discord. For some time, Lori has been having an affair with a man she met at work, Jack Summers. Lori has been planning to leave Mark and move to Detroit with Jack. In fact, just before her death, her father loans her $2,000 to actually help her with this move. Detectives learn that Lori planned to tell Mark on the very day of her death with her father by her side for backup. Joining me on today's episode is Joe Kennedy, the expert when it comes to cold cases. Joe started the cold case unit of NCIS, hello, and wrote the book on solving cold cases. He's traveled and worked in over 100 countries and has received dozens of awards for his work. Joe has also conducted and supervised thousands of criminal investigations in his 30-year career as a federal law enforcement agent. He's the perfect guy to have on this show. Welcome to the show, Joe. How you doing?
2: Hey, Darren. Thanks so much for having me today. I look forward to talking with you about this important case.
3: I mean, you're doing important work here. Let's let's start with first things first. What drew you to kind of working with cold cases? What is it about cold cases that inspire you?
2: Well, I think the biggest thing, you know, I initially started my law enforcement career doing a lot of undercover uh, activities, operating undercover, you know, buying illegal drugs, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, after a while, that gets old. What intrigued me most about cold cases is putting the pieces of the puzzle together. A lot of cases that you work is pl- like playing checkers. And when you get into a cold case, it's more like playing a game of chess. So the, the intrigue, the mystery is what really uh, you know, drew me to wanting to work cold cases.
3: What is the longest period of time of a cold case you've found out and, and, and solved? What has been the longest period of time since when that first case first happened to when you solved it?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a lot of cases, you know, that there are 30 years plus uh, I was involved in a case that was, you know, 50 years old uh, that that eventually ended up getting solved. And, you know, the key is, um, you know, in a hot case, you know, time is your enemy. You know, you have the first 48, 72 hours to solve a case. But with a cold case, you actually use time as your ally. Right. The passage of time becomes your friend. And that really uh, comes down to relationship changes. You know, boyfriend and girlfriend of yesteryear are no longer together right, they wouldn't maybe cooperate with the police or share a a piece of information they had during the original investigation. And then 10, 20, 30 years later, they realize they've, you know, went through different stations of life, you know, matured and they, oh, maybe I do need to reveal that, that piece of information that I have on that case.
3: To me, it seems very intimidating to go to a case that's 30, 40 years old. And you're kind of saying like, time is going to be your best friend here. To me, that just seems so wildly intimidating to go back to a puzzle piece from 30, 40 years ago. I almost feel like it would be fraught and we would never be able to solve it.
2: No, time really becomes our friend. And and it's so interesting with the, with the changes in relationships, you know, Darren. Right. you know, imagine the people in your life, right, that just 10 years ago that are now not part of your life. Right. What could they tell us about? That they wouldn't have been willing to tell us 10 years ago when you were, had some intimacy with them. But now they would tell us everything. And that's just kind of how it kind of works. What inconsistencies are uncovered?
3: But also, memory is kind of a bitch. And it's hard to remember what I even had for breakfast yesterday, let alone 30 years ago. So if people are giving an inconsistent testimony 25, 30 years later, how much weight do you put into that?
2: Well, it, it, that, that's determined by the, the, the statement of fact. That's a term we use, statement of fact. Is it a statement of fact or is it to the best of their recollection? And you will see that, you know, when people commit murder or people are aware that a person has committed murder, it's imprinted in their brains like a digital photograph. You know, we go back and interview a lot of suspects that, you know, we we were able to close the case on in a cold case, Some, Some, whether it's DNA or we found a witness who had a key piece of evidence, whatever it is. And inevitably they say, hey, look, I could not get that event out of my mind it was imprinted in my mind. Well, the same is with witnesses because they know, hey, there was some key piece of information that they should have told the police years ago that they didn't tell the police. And maybe the police didn't even ask the right questions because that happens oftentimes too. I mean, we've solved cases literally by the witness saying, look, I I was not going to implicate him. He was my boyfriend at the time and the police never even actually asked me if he killed him or not. So, they don't feel like, you know, they, they shared what they shared, but they you know weren't trying to hide anything. So uh, cold cases can take many different twists and turns.
3: Well, that's a good sequitur because there's a lot of twists and turns to this case. And I'm glad that we have you today, Joe. So thank you for joining us. In 1988, during the first investigation, detectives questioned whether Lori was really alone when she died. Although investigators suspected that Lori likely did not die by suicide, they did not have enough evidence to rule it as a homicide either. Decades later, retired Sheriff Jim Smith, who worked on the original case, dug the investigation back up. Using modern technology and new questioning techniques, they had grounds to reopen the case. Okay, I want to talk to you a little bit about the gunshots. What we know right now, we think Lori has killed herself. In your opinion and with your expertise, why do you think nobody kind of thinks anything of the gunshots if they were so nearby? Like, if I'm driving and I hear what I think is a gun going off, could be a car backfiring, but I think a gun's going off, that anyone would fucking stop to go look at what's going on. Why do you think Mark said like, oh, yeah, he just continued on. He didn't think anything of the gunshots like that to me is immediately suspicious.
2: Yeah, that that is highly suspicious, and that's a red flag, and I mean, we would immediately jump on that. Anyone, especially a loved one, if you're you know in close proximity right. to a loved one and you hear a gunshot go off, it's only common sense says, hey, you would go and check on that person to see, hey, are they are they okay? Are they safe? <laughs> right. Who just shot the gun? You know, uh, for him to report it that way, that's just so unbelievable, and any, any of us have loved ones and family members, I mean, that's the first thing we're going to do is go check on them.
3: When they are examining Lori's body, she's right-handed dominant and the bullet wound was on the left-hand side, which to me, I'm right-handed as well. I think if I was putting a gun to my face, I wouldn't go to the opposite side of my body. That feels very uncomfortable. But what exactly is so suspect about the bullet wound? Is it just the placement of it? Is it the blood running down? What is immediately suspicious to you about this?
2: Well, one of the things that we look at at any crime scene, whether it's a contemporaneous homicide that's just happened or it's a cold case and we're reviewing the photographs of the death scene, we look for two things. Passive blood flow and vertical blood droplets. Right? Okay. That's the two key things that we're looking at. And in this case, if we're looking at passive blood flow, right, and she shoots herself and falls to the ground, you know, the, the passive blood flow should be draining right in a downward angle. They shouldn't be going in any other direction. And a lot of people don't use their non-dominant hands. Yeah. So if I've got to reach all the way around, you know, to the other side of my face, I'm not going to get the correct trajectory. And we do things called trajectory analysis using some dowel rods or some lasers to show, okay, here's the entrance and here's the exit wound, right? right. And if there's no exit wound, at least where did the projectile end up, you know, in the brain or at what part of the brain did it end up? The trajectory analysis is just, it's incorrect. There's, it's impossible to be able to do that. Now, also keep in mind this. And this is an interesting stat for you, uh, Darren, is that in seventy percent of suicides, the gun should be touching or within one foot of the body. One of the things that jumped out with me, if if I read the documents correctly, is that the gun appears to be a distance of greater than one foot from her. Right? It's nearby, is what the is what the documents say. So to me, that's a, automatically I'm thinking, hmm, it's not touching within one foot of the body. What's going on here?
3: Why are the police sort of unable to rule out? suicide immediately knowing she's right-handed dominant and it being on the left side i mean isn't that kind of obvious the fact that they kind of rule it as such in the beginning just seems super odd to me why wouldn't they rule it a homicide with that
2: there's only three ways to solve a murder i don't want you to think about this first of all physical evidence okay we need we need fingerprints we need dna we need something to to prove they did it it, it's at the suspect's house, right? His DNA is supposed to be there. His fingerprints are supposed to be supposed to be there, right? So, and in, in, in ironically, only about fifteen percent of cases are solved with physical evidence, and that includes DNA. Jesus. The next way we, yeah, the next way we solve a murder is witnesses, right? About thirty-five percent of cases are solved with witnesses. But what what's the problem with witnesses, right? They don't show up for trial. They change their their memories are
3: shit. Yeah, they're human beings. (laughs) Memories are (laughs) bad,
2: right? They're 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 impeached. Their credibility is impeached at trial, right? So fifty percent of murder cases come down to the investigator's ability to get the suspect to confess to them. Think of that number. That's huge. But in, in about. That's what it takes to get a murder case, you know, into a courtroom is a confession, fifty percent of the time. Now, prosecutors, ironically, they want all three, which we call the silver platter. They want some physical evidence, they want some witnesses, and they want a confession. Sure. Well, in this initial investigation, all there are are a lot of inconsistencies. We lack those three things that we need to solve a murder case.
3: Does this sort of happen with homicides a lot? Like what's kind of their first initial instinct what's okay to say what's not okay to say do police have suspects in their mind that they can't say yet because they don't want to affect the case in the wrong way i just i just kind of want to know how common how common this is it seems a little odd that they would think that it's a suicide when it clearly does not seem that way to me
2: it certainly you know with the information that we have it would it would certainly create red flags for me you know, and, and what I'm assuming happened here, I have to be careful when we assume things, right? Of course. Um, but uh, it, it looks like they probably there were some suspicions, right? But they just didn't have enough to, to get this into a court of law or to advance it. Yeah. You know, and so we say the investigative didn't have any legs, right? And we got to remember there's competing priorities. There could have been other cases ongoing or other homicides coming in. That's one of the things with cold cases today. When you talk about it, it's the volume of cases. Right. Right. I mean, we go to certain major metropolitan cities. They're overwhelmed. And so you only have those first 48, 72 hours. And then if a case is not solved, you're catching the next case. Right. Here's another homicide that just happened today. You know, so, OK, we didn't solve the one that happened two days ago. Well, let's concentrate on this one. And before you know it, you know, the passage of time, six, seven, eight, ten 10 months a years passed. And, you, you know, you've got a little uh, series of cold cases on your hands. And that's that's pretty common.
3: In 2014, the Columbia County Sheriff's Office is encouraged to reopen Lori's case by Jim Smith, a retired sheriff and one of the former detectives who worked the case. In 2017, three years later, Lori's body is re-examined. Once again, the gunshot wound to the left side of her head is deemed extremely noteworthy. According to the pathologist, less than 6% of suicides by handgun are committed with the person's non-dominant hand. The medical examiner also notes that Lori's wounds are not consistent with suicide. The angle of the gunshot wound is off. Investigators schedule a meeting with Mark to re-interview him at his new home in Arizona, and his stories during these interviews are inconsistent with the details of his original interview. This time, he reveals that on the day of his wife's death, he is aware of the location of Lori's body before her father, Stanley, arrived at their home. He now claims that he waited for Stanley, leading him to Lori's body because he didn't want to be the first person to find her. Despite the amount of time that has passed since Lori's death, detectives find these inconsistencies particularly unusual, later stating to the media, obviously, when there are conflicting statements in any investigation, you have to weigh that against how important it is. And if there is a gap in time, one can understand that there can be some differences. Quote, the facts are the facts. His wife died and his recollection of that should be pretty consistent no matter what the time frame is, end quote. At this time, detectives conduct a search of Mark's home and police also speak with the Bringy's neighbors, several of whom comment that they knew Mark to be incredibly controlling of Lori. A friend of Lori's even tells detectives that Mark had a habit of recording his wife's phone calls. Throughout the second investigation, detectives learned that Mark actually knew about Lori's affair with Jack Summers and that Mark phoned Jack the day after Lori's death. As they dig deeper, police find that after Lori's death, Mark was paid out a sum of $32,000 on a life insurance policy he kept on her, as well as an additional payout from a mortgage insurance policy. I wonder for you, you're obviously an expert in cold cases, but not every case gets reopened. What does it take... To reopen a case? How hard or difficult can this be, especially after decades uh, limited resources? Why pick one case over another?
2: In terms of methodology, we use something called solvability factors. And in terms of solvability factors, you know, we ask questions like, are the witnesses from the original investigation still alive, right? Because the passage of time, you'll find people are dead. We can't get their story because, you know, they've passed on. Is there evidence still available for retesting or new technology? Uh, Some police departments, you know, because of space or, you know, the department moved to a new building or what have you, you'll be surprised that some old cold cases, the evidence has been destroyed. The evidence has been gotten rid of. The evidence has been lost. I had a police department the other week. I was helping in a case and they actually, we couldn't find the evidence because the, the the police station had burned down 21 years ago. The other thing that we're looking for in terms of, of evidence is what new evidence can be applied to it, right? That's where you're seeing a lot of advancements today is genetic genealogy or forensic genetic genealogy. Is years ago, you know, we would need a full profile, right? Or what we call a full CODIS marker to upload it and actually get a hit. We couldn't do a whole lot with degraded DNA or what we call low level DNA. And today we can do that. So there's a lot of advancements in that arena. And then some of the other investigative steps is we, we're going to go talk to the prosecutor and say, hey, if we can develop enough evidence, are you willing to prosecute this case? That's 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 a very critical step that we would go to. And one of the other things we do is is we need to reapproach the victim's family, you know, because oftentimes you know, they're very helpful, will be able to tell us, hey, what's changed or what has been developed over the years? Or has anybody acted differently or strangely or, you know, since the case happened? So, you know, there's just a lot of investigative steps that must be done and they have to be done in a particular order there. And if you don't do them correctly, you can really, you know, get off track.
3: Well, to some extent, it makes me feel good that, There are a lot of steps to reopen a cold case, because that means that the work needs to be done in order to prosecute this and get this done effectively. But I'm wondering, given the fact that your expertise could be anywhere from, you know, a cold case that's been 18 months cold to 18 years and and further, does it always have to be with someone who would originally work the case? I mean, let's just say the original detective was dead or didn't want to participate. Can you still go forward in that or is that kind of required in order to reopen the case?
2: No, you'll find that that is not only is it not a requirement, but, you know, oftentimes, you know, you want to gain that collaboration with the original detective. Sure. But some original detectives don't want to have anything to do with it. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, they just they just don't. They're over it. Some of them want too much to do with it. Right. So you have to be careful there, too, that you you don't want to go down the same rabbit hole as you did in the original case. There's a fine line and balance of, okay, we're bringing back this person. Maybe they're retired now. You know, and so we want them to be a contributor to the team, but we also want them to realize that that passage of time, this is what we're good at, is exploiting the passage of time. And and now use those potential witnesses.
3: In your experience, and I don't know if you can at least ballpark this, what percentage of cold cases end up getting solved?
2: OK, so, Darren, this is a crazy number, but I'm going to share it with Please. you. So one in five cold cases After we read the file, will we actually have a conclusively identified or a conclusive identified suspect? In other words, we think this person did it. One in 20 of those will actually be charged by a prosecutor, and only one in 100 of those will actually result in a successful prosecution. So that's like
3: half a percentage point or something is what you're telling me. Maybe not even. Maybe a quarter of a percentage point.
2: Yeah, people don't realize it is extremely hard to solve a cold case. And until an investigative genetic genealogy, really you had to do one of two things. You had to be a skilled interviewer and interrogator and get the person to confess, right? And sure. there's, a, there's a methodology for that as well, you know, of going back to somebody 10, 20, 30 years later. Or you had to come up with that witness they had told. This is, this is interesting. Suspects always tell somebody they did it. It's how they cope. But then 10, 20 years later, you find those witnesses and they said, you know what? Yeah, John said he was a suspect because he was the last one to see her alive. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. We pull out the original investigative file. He denied being there. So that's a big inconsistency. A lot of people don't realize, you know, the effort that the investigators have to go through sometimes just to find investigative files or to dig up old evidence and to track tracking down witnesses is difficult. So there's there's a lot of things that go into work in a cold case. Learn more at
0: Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
3: It's certainly an uphill battle. I mean, even the numbers alone seem like an uphill battle. But why do you think Detective Smith on this case is stuck on this case specifically for years? I mean, do you think he just had some questions that he just needed answer or just never felt like a neat nice and tidy bow wrapped on the end of this gift. I mean, he must have just been haunted by it.
2: Well, you, you, the, the words you just used is so correct. You know, many investigators are haunted right. by not being able to solve that case. Here's the interesting thing. You know, detectives have copies of investigative files in their house from 20, 30-year-old cases because, and they go back and look at them. Right. They can't let it go. This is very common. That's one of the that's what they can't sleep. And so one of the investigative steps we do is we say, hey, when you're reinitiating an old case, when you go back and talk to the original detective, don't ask them if they have part of the old file. Say, where is the old file at? (laughs) Because they definitely do.
3: Yeah,
2: they have it. And I've pulled old files out of attics. Out of basements. I mean, I've I, here recently. I went to the. I went to. A, it was a detective who had died. I went to his widow, and I said, "Hey, I know he's probably got this old case file." And she said, "Hey, let me get my grandson." The grandson came in. We pulled down the attic. We didn't find one old case. We found three. Wow. Right, three old cold cases, and you know because they they can't let go of it. I'm sure that's what happened with Detective Smith is it's, this thing gnawed at him. It was like a dog on a bone. I mean, he. I'm sure he just felt like, man, I got I to gotta figure this out. He knew something was not right.
3: You know, you mentioned this uphill battle of just reopening a cold case, let alone solving the fucking thing. What does it take for Detective Smith to convince Columbia County investigators to reopen the case? I mean, how hard is it to convince the right people to reopen cases?
2: Well, I, I'm sure he was very persistent, right? Because most district attorneys, most prosecutors, Darren, they're risk averse, right? They want that silver platter. Hey, get me some witnesses, get me a confession, get me some fingerprints, get me some DNA. So, you know, what he did is is not the norm. I mean, and, and I say that in all sincerity, that he had to be very persistent and tenacious to even convince them, right? Because this is a big risk for them. So, you know, I applaud him, you know, tremendously for what he did to to get that case over the hump.
3: What details of Mark's new retelling of the case after we reopen it are inconsistent with his original story that were incredibly suspicious to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, the big thing is, you know, during the original investigation, he alleges that he arrived home kind of simultaneous to his father-in-law. Right. And then they go out together and first observe the body. But then in the reinvestigation, he tells the detectives that, hey, well, I actually knew she was outside before I alerted my father-in-law of that fact. That is, that is so night and day.
1: Ridiculous. That, that, thing is,
2: <laughs> that thing is just ringing. Oh, my goodness. Here I am. And you'll have that in some cold cases that when you reapproach approach the, the suspects, they, they make a, a, a tremendous misstep. And that's what he did. He probably didn't even realize what he was saying until it was too late.
3: Do we have any evidence of domestic abuse in the Bringy family prior to Lori's death?
2: Um, You know, I did not see a ton of that in the the documents that I reviewed. I think there was certainly discord.
3: You know, we, we sort of mentioned that Mark might be recording Lori's phone conversations, which seems to me not only extremely controlling, but kind of borderline stalking behavior. Do we know for sure that Mark was recording Lori's conversations?
2: Well, it, it certainly appears that, you know, there, evidence was uncovered in the reinvestigation that there's there's some sort of recording, right. monitoring of phone calls. And when you think about it, that's that's not only controlling, that, that's very narcissistic behavior, right? And, you know, and it, it's pretty common in int- intimate partner murders. You'll see the exact same thing of, you know, controlling. You'll hear witnesses and friends of the victim describe it. Hey, that victim was controlled and she snapped at his fingers and did what he wanted. And, you know, very subservient. These types of things is, is what you'll see unfold in a lot of relationships.
3: On February 28th, 2018, Mark, now 70, is arrested for the first degree murder of his wife, Lori. The detective in charge of the newly reopened investigation states that there wasn't one singular damning piece of evidence against Mark, but all the little things add up to him looking extremely guilty. Quote, the trajectory angle of the bullet going in did not seem consistent with the self-inflicted wound and there was some information that she was leaving her husband that day. You start piecing everything together and it did not look like a suicide, end quote. Mark's trial begins mid-June of 2021. The prosecution's theory of the case is that Mark learned about Lori's affair and shot her in a jealous rage. The ADA states his belief that Mark kills Lori at around 4 p.m., just after the two arrive home from Lori's job. He theorized that Mark shoots Lori in his truck, then moves her body to the location where he later finds it with her father. This would make sense considering there's no blood really found at the scene. Then the defense calls a former police officer as their witness. He testifies that in the time leading up to Lori's death, she was depressed, her relationship was strained, and the family was experiencing financial issues. At trial, Lori and Mark's children, who were six and eight at the time of their mother's death, testify on their father's behalf. Both state that they were with their father when they heard the gunshots. They each deny being coached by their father about what to say to the police. Okay, so this is big because remember, Mark's kind of changing his story here. Now, the prosecution calls an emergency responder who's at the scene in 1988 and spoke to the children soon after the shooting. She tells the jury that the children informed her that they were inside the house with their grandmother when they heard the gunshots. However, the prosecution star witness in the case didn't exist at the time of Lori's death, a 3D printer. A key piece of evidence in this case is Lori's skull. Remember we said earlier that the angle of the bullet hole in her head was slightly off to be deemed a suicide? Well, the DA wanted to demonstrate this to the jury firsthand, but was hesitant to bring an actual skull into court to show the jury. Yeah, I bet. Instead, the prosecution team had the brilliant idea to 3D print an exact replica of Lori's skull so that they could demonstrate the inconsistency to the jury. This is the first time a piece of 3D printed evidence is used at trial in the state of Wisconsin. And it turns out that giving the jury a piece of physical evidence to look at and form a connection to paid off. I want to talk a little bit about the trial and the new tech that was brought in. Was anything new learned from the time of the murder from the time that Mark was actually charged?
2: You know, I don't think there's a lot of, of new information up until the re-interview of him. Right. And, you know, where he makes that big misstep. And that's kind of what gets him, you know, I'm sure the investigators were were very encouraged once he provided those inconsistent statements, right? Because they were so inconsistent that the village idiot would be able to pick up on that one. Hey, you know, what's going on here? No way. You know, you might might forget a lot of things over 20 or 30 years, but you're not going to forget, hey, I went out and found her alone before. My father in law was there.
3: I would think that you would remember at least a little detail about finding your wife, uh, you know, committed suicide if you were that shocked by it. Why do police believe that Lori is killed in Mark's truck? Do we have any forensic evidence from the truck, or was that just kind of a convenient theory that happened to work out?
2: Well, I, I don't think there was ever any evidence uncovered from the truck, but we lack, you know, when we talk about blood flow and passive blood flow or vertical blood droplets they're they're not at the scene, right? Right Now that also could be described with the placement of the shoes, right? That is these shoes, I do and I'm not sure exactly what kind of shoes they were, but did they fall off or could they have been, you know, that's why they were placed where they were. So it's right. not staging at all, that it's more, hey, as he gets all the things out of her car, he needs to put them somewhere. And this is a classic, you know, what we would call an intimate partner murder. Right. And these are very common, right? And you'll see we're, the suspects will often try to stage the scene. You know, they've killed their, their significant other, and now what do they do? They have to get the spotlight off of them and on to somebody else. You'll find that when, when people are abducted and murdered, oftentimes... As the perpetrator's leaving or, or trying to get away, he's gotten rid of the body. And then he realizes, oh, wait a minute, that belongs to the victim. You know, maybe it's a hair barrette or a shoe. And so they just start throwing it out the window. Right. In his case, you know, he's got to account for her. So it's probably a theory that they were working off of a timeline and that they were together, you know, before. Right. And then where were they at? And so timelines are so important.
3: I'm a visual learner. I certainly like to have things shown to me as opposed to maybe just said to me. But what is it about having a 3D model of Lori's exact skull that is so compelling to the jury and I believe kind of clinches this case?
2: Uh, What you want to do is you have to be able to tell a story that is convincing to the jury. And think about it, about 40 percent of the population are visual learners. 40% 40% of the population's auditory learners, and then 20% are kinesthetic learners, right? They don't believe it if they see it or they hear it. Yeah. They want to touch it, right? <laughs> um, but when you look at that group of 20% and then the 40% of visual learners, that 60% of the population does want to see exactly what you're alluding to. So anything that is illustrative to a jury is much more powerful than words, you know, and it's the old cliche of a picture's worth a thousand words. And that's what I think the prosecutors were trying to get across. And I think they did a great job with this 3D rendition.
3: I agree. Obviously, technology can probably, you know, technology, DNA testing, all that stuff, as we move forward on in our life, it's probably only going to get easier and more implemented. But with advances in DNA technology, has this changed the success rate of solving cold cases?
2: They're still so hard to solve. You know, those numbers don't change even with genetic genealogy, right? Because they're just catching some of those ghost suspects because so many cold cases, there is no DNA left behind that we can reanalyze or retest. Right. Right. We are having to depend on going back, finding those witnesses that they confided in. And it's a soothing technique. You know, suspects always tell somebody, always, Over the course of the years, hey, yeah, I was a suspect. Yeah, I did this. I shouldn't have done it. They're out drinking one night. They had too many beers and they say, yeah, you know, I was involved in this. So has technology improved? Oh, yeah. From a genetic genealogy standpoint, 100%. But 3D rendition in a computer model. Wow, that's that's we couldn't have used that. Right. When this case happened. Right. That was not available. So what a great technique that the prosecutors put together in this case. And you'll see that there's a lot of different things like that.
3: Absolutely, I mean, this is this is straight out of an NCIS episode I gotta say here, Joe, but uh <laughs> does Mark maintain a relationship with his children? Do they still believe he's innocent?
2: Uh, I think they do. You know, from the things that I picked up and read is that they testified on his behalf and they stuck to their story. but uh, that happens, you know, over the years, I've worked you know hundreds and hundreds of cases. I know I even had some very serious. Uh, incest cases or child sex abuse cases where, you know, even those victims still sided with their parents after they've been violated. A lot of things, you know, go back to familial relationships and interpersonal relationships. And who knows what those children were told over the years by their father after, you know, he, and we all want to believe our parents, right? right. Regardless of who of they are, I don't care what what they've done. In their, we all have that desire to believe our parents.
3: Do you believe Mark is guilty of Lori's murder?
2: You know, I I haven't looked at enough evidence, you know, I'd be guessing because I haven't seen the crime scene photographs. I haven't seen the original autopsy report, but I think the investigators, Detective Smith's hunch or gut feeling says a lot to me that he, he certainly believes something was going on. There was a nefarious activity. There was not a suicide. And so for me, I have learned that we have to follow our instincts. And so I would say just at face value of what I've looked at Yeah, I would say he's convicted in a court of law. And with all those inconsistencies in his story and the trajectory, trajectory analysis is so important in a case, right? It shows us the path and the flight of that bullet. And from the stuff I have reviewed, I would say that I do think, yes, absolutely, he's guilty.
3: On June 25th, 2021, the jury finds Mark, now 73, guilty of Lori's murder. 33 years after the murder, Mark is sentenced to life in prison, and Lori is finally, finally given justice. There have been a lot of TV shows and films that focus on the subject of cold cases and solving those cold cases. In the last 10 years, we've had programs like Cold Case, CSI, and Law & Order, which at times attempt to show what it's like to work a Cold Case. I would be remiss to have you on, Joe, and not kind of talk to you, given the fact that you are the cold case guy, to just talk about cold cases in entertainment these days. What do you think these TV shows do right when it comes to accurately showing what it's like to work on a cold case?
2: Well, I I think they they show the effort that the detectives have to take to work a cold case. A cold case detective, they get very emotional in their cases because it is a game of cat and mouse, 100%. And you get emotionally invested into these cases and you'll see some cases you'll work for weeks, months and years as a cold case. And then at the end of the day, guess what? It's still a cold case.
3: What do these shows get just plain wrong? Like anything that just frustrates you where you're like, that's just not how it fucking it's like, that's just not it.
2: Well, we don't solve a case in 30 or 40 I was
3: going to say, the solve rate on these shows feels higher than the, you know, yeah. infantismal percentage point you were given me earlier. So that, I guess, is probably one, Yeah.
2: Yeah, that, that's that's an obvious one, and and the other one is working a cold case. It, it takes a lot of strategy, which I th- I think they don't include, and they make it look like you have access to all this instantaneous databases. Like you can query the the DNA system of all law enforcement, you know, in an hour. That just does not happen. You know, lab work can take days, weeks, months. Now, I'll give you my state of North Carolina right now to get a DNA sample back on a on a murder case. It's months. That's in a that's in a high-priority case, yeah, right? But for the average murder, it could take anywhere from up to a year, 18 months, just to get DNA back from a lab. So as you're working cold cases, when we talk about new technology, even though we have the ability to look at low-level or degraded DNA now, it can still take months, weeks, years before we get that thing solved. So I think where the shows get it wrong is the time, right? It's even more tedious than normal detective work, but it's also a great challenge, right? And that's why I love cold cases so much, Darren, is is the I love the mystery of it.
3: Thank you, Joe, for taking the time today to talk with me about my questions around this case. One thing is for sure, regardless of my own questions about this, we just hope justice was served for Lori. For you guys listening to the show, what are your killer questions for this case? You can message me on social media at Carpe Darren. I'm Darren Carp. Thanks for listening to Killer Questions. For even more true crime from ID and you want that head to discovery plus go to discoveryplus.com/killerquestions to start your 7-day free trial today that's discoveryplus.com/killerquestions terms
1: apply A lot can happen in 3 years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night Sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50